So we're reading about um, the Acts of the, the Apostles, sometimes also called the Acts of the Spirit. Um, and we're reading from chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground and when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind And he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. 
He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Well, it's, uh, it's nice to be back uh, after a couple of weeks' break. I hope everyone had a, uh, a nice Christmas and New Year period. Uh, people always say to me, uh, Carl, when you take a holiday, don't, don't spend this holiday just reading books. Uh, and so this year I really took that to heart and I took my time to crochet Yoda. Uh, <laughs> So we just put him there for the, uh, for the rest of the service. Didn't turn out as well as I'd hoped, but uh, nonetheless. I kept saying to myself, do, Carl, there is no try. Well, on more serious notes, let's, uh, let's pray before we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your great gospel work in the world and in the lives of people, uh, people like Saul. Lord, thank you that uh, we've just been able to read about that now. Uh, and Lord, as we, we ask as we meditate and reflect on that, uh, that you would encourage us again by your great love and power uh, in calling people to yourself through Jesus Christ uh, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, in whose name we uh, uh, by whose name and whose power we also pray, Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, during the, uh, <clears throat> during the massacre of two million Cambodians uh, under the reign of the Khmer Rouge, one of the most notorious figures uh, during that time was known by the name Duke, Comrade Duke. Uh, one BBC article describes Duke as the symbol of Khmer Rouge terror. He was kind of, uh, along with Pol Pot, he was one of the worst defenders, uh, one of the worst war criminals during that period in Cambodia's history. But on Christmas Day in 1993, uh, a long time after uh, that period, Duke became a Christian. He gave his life to Jesus and he was later baptised by one of the many Cambodians who had fled for their lives under his reign of terror. When he was arrested in 1999, he was found quietly working with a, with a Christian humanitarian organisation among the rural poor. When he was tried by the UN-backed uh, court, he admitted his crimes and asked for forgiveness, while the others on trial... Uh, denied any wrongdoing. Duke's life was transformed by an encounter with the truth of the good news about Jesus Christ. 
And in the passage that we just read before, we're told about another man whose life was transformed, changed by a dramatic encounter with Jesus, a man who converted in the most unlikely of circumstances. His name was Saul. And in many ways, Saul is the prototype unlikely Christian convert. He's the very first in a long line of people throughout history. We could go through person after person after person uh, throughout all history of unlikely converts. People who turned from darkness and came into the wonderful light of God. They are stories which I think resonate with us, which strike us deeply because they remind us of God's great gospel love and God's great gospel power. We first meet Saul in the book of Acts at the end of chapter 7. He's presiding over the stoning to death of a a Christian man named Stephen. At the beginning of chapter 9, we meet Saul again, and he's still breathing out uh, murderous threats. His new mission now is to head to Damascus to find Christians in the local synagogues and to arrest them and to take them back to Jerusalem and to imprison them there. But as Saul heads off for this uh, mission, he encounters an obstacle. And the obstacle in his path is God. God encounters him on on Paul's way uh, to Damascus on the road. Uh, Notice that it's not Saul who's gone in search of God, but God who comes down and confronts Saul. And Saul has no option but to listen to what God has to say. A dazzling light appears from heaven and flashes all around and a voice from heaven asks, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul doesn't know who it is. Of course he doesn't. He thinks Jesus is lying dead, buried in the ground somewhere. His his body has been stolen by his disciples. The voice says, To Saul, probably some of the most startling words he's ever heard, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Saul thought that Jesus was a rank fraud, and so he was doing everything in his power to stop the spread of the gospel, to stop Christianity. But it turns out that the Jesus that Saul thought had been crucified and buried and left dead in the ground was actually alive and well and speaking to him right now from heaven. Jesus had, in fact, been raised from the dead. He really was the Son of God. And it turns out that in persecuting the Christians, Paul was actually working against God rather than for God. Paul hadn't taken Jesus seriously, and now he was forced to take Jesus seriously. His most deeply held beliefs were fundamentally confronted and had to be fundamentally changed. When he's led to Damascus, he has to be led there because he's blind. He has to be led there. He spends three days in Damascus praying, refusing to eat and drink. No doubt he's trying to come to terms with what he's encountered. What's going on? His whole world has has been turned upside down. Saul is blinded in this encounter with Jesus, and his blindness becomes really a kind of a metaphor for his spiritual condition. He thought that he saw the world truly. He thought he understand, understood who God was. He thought he understood who Jesus was and who Jesus wasn't. But it turned out that he was utterly blind and lost. And it's only later when he meets Ananias that the scales fall from his eyes, both 
physically and metaphorically. He finally gets it. He finally sees who Jesus is. Saul's own blindness is mirrored in events later in the chapter as well. We're told uh, later in chapter 9 and verse 20 that Saul went out preaching the gospel. And the people are, of course, amazed that there's this guy here who's been persecuting Christians, who's now preaching uh, the very thing that he was opposed to. But what really baffled them, we're told in verse 22, was his proofs from the Scriptures that Jesus was the one whom the Old Testament had spoken about, the one that God had promised in the past would come and and rescue people from, from their sin. It was presumably during those three days in Damascus, blind, praying, refusing to eat or drink, it was presumably during those three days that Paul finally came to see that the life of Jesus matched those things in the Old Testament, that the life of Jesus matched what the Bible said would happen, what God had said would happen. You see, it's not just meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus which changes Paul's mind, but having met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he thinks to himself, what's going on? And he's pushed back to the evidence for Jesus that there is there in the Bible. He hadn't taken Jesus seriously, and meeting Jesus, he was forced to take him seriously once more. Well, I wonder if uh, you, like Saul, have failed to grapple with who Jesus really is. Uh, You might uh, have encountered Jesus, you might have heard about who he is, but you might think he's a fraud. Uh, You might think that he didn't live. Uh, Apparently, 40% of people in Britain, I think it is, are not convinced that Jesus Uh, ever lived, despite the fact that most historians are convinced that he lived. Uh, Or you might think that he did live, uh, and you might even think that Jesus died on a cross, but you think that he never rose again. Or you think that he was a good man, uh, but that he wasn't God, or that uh, he was nothing more uh, than an ordinary man. Or you might think that you don't need to know Jesus to know God. You might think that any religion will get you there, that, uh, that all the religions in the world are just an elephant that we can't, you know, we can't all see. Each of us are holding on to a different part, the leg, the trunk, the nose, the ear, whatever it is. Paul's experience on the road to Damascus, on the road to Damascus is a prod for us to take another look at Jesus. Paul thought he understood what was going on, but he met Jesus and he had to take another look. And his experience is a prod for us as well, to sift the evidence, to read the Bible, to read one of the Gospels, maybe, and to find out who Jesus really is. To take another look at the evidence. Why not do that, if that's you? If you Uh, don't know who Jesus is, why not take another look at the evidence? Why not take another look at who the Bible says that Jesus is? Why not take another look at what the Old Testament said about the one who was to come, the one that God would send? Why not take a look at how meeting Jesus changed the lives of people like Saul? Why not take another look at how masterfully Jesus seems to get the world, seems to make sense of the world and the problems of the world? Why not take another look at how Jesus addresses the problems of the world and solves them and resolves them? 
why not take another look and why not pray that God would enable you to discover who Jesus is? You see, Paul had ignored Jesus, but on that road to Damascus, he realised that the Jesus that he was ignoring, the Jesus that he hadn't taken seriously, was the risen and ascended Jesus. What he thought was a lie turned out to actually be true. Well, Saul discovers who Jesus is when he meets uh, him on the road to Damascus. And God, having confronted Saul, now sends someone from the church to go out and help him, to go out and help Saul. God doesn't convert Saul to be kind of a a one-man band, a lone ranger. He converts him into the church, into the community of people who know and love Jesus. Saul also needs a bit of instruction uh, in kind of beginning the Christian life. It becomes clear from what uh, what Saul says later on in Acts uh, that Ananias helped him to know how to respond to the gospel. So God comes to Ananias and says to him in verse 11, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street uh, and ask for a man uh, man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias is uh, understandably concerned. (laughs) He says to God in verse 13, basically, are you really sure you want me to do this? This guy is like the worst enemy of the church. He's imprisoning Christians. He's presided over their deaths. Uh, (laughs) Are you really sure that you want me to go and, and... and see him. It sounds like you're sending me to my death or to imprisonment or something. God's reply is emphatic. Go! (laughs) Don't argue, just go. Go, I've got plans for him. God has plans for Saul and they can't be thwarted. It's a remarkable reminder, I think, Ananias' response and God's uh, emphatic reply, it's a remarkable reminder, I, I think, that those that we might think are too far away from the gospel are never too far away for God. Today's atheist, today's worst enemy of the church, might be tomorrow's gospel preacher. Today's war criminal might be tomorrow's humanitarian worker. Sometimes we're so pessimistic that we think, I won't, well, I'm, I'm not even going to bother trying to talk to that person about the gospel because I know that they won't listen. They're too far from God. And God says, go. <laughs> go. Who knows whether they're another Saul? I sometimes think back to some of the people that, uh, that I went to school with. Some of them had no interest in Christianity at all, whatsoever. Now, some of them, you know, they'd heard it, they'd, they'd sat under it, uh, and they just weren't interested. And yet, what's remarkable is that quite a number of them now have actually become Christians. There's a guy uh, that I used to, every week on Tuesday night, we used to go to catechism together. It was like a, it was like a slow death, the, uh, the car trip home, uh, you know, trying to make, make conversation with him. Uh, and I haven't seen him for 20 years, but it's so encouraging to hear that he has become a Christian. And his wife, who he married, is not a Christian. Both of them have come to know the Lord in the last uh, five years. It's just remarkable, isn't it? A remarkable work of God, a remarkable miracle of God. 
calling people who have no interest in the gospel, people who are hardened against the gospel and making them saints of God. Who is the person that you know that you think is the least likely person to come to Jesus? Take a moment today and think of the person that you think is the least likely to come to Jesus and pray for that person. Pray that God might call that person out of darkness into light. Why not? God calls us uh, to be ministers to even the most unlikely of converts. We too easily write others off as beyond the power of God to save. And sometimes we even write ourselves off as beyond the power of God to save. We might think about ourselves. Well, I'm too far from God. There's, there's too much water under the bridge. There's nothing I can, I can't come back. God would never take me. But if he can take Paul back, he can take you. Paul wasn't just disinterested in Christianity, he was anti-Christian. And yet God drew him back. You can pray, God, please forgive me and make me like Jesus. And it's the one prayer above all others that you know that God will answer. Please forgive me and make me like Jesus. Well, Ananias goes to Saul as God told him. One man, William Barclay, describes Ananias as one of the forgotten heroes of the church (laughs) because of his boldness in going to visit Saul. And going as he does uh, to a furious and apparently dangerous opponent uh, of the church, he he, uh, does something truly remarkable and truly breathtaking. When he gets to uh, Saul, we're told in verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Here is Ananias' arch enemy, the man who has killed and arrested Christians, perhaps even killed and arrested some of his friends. And Ananias enters the house, he puts his hands on Saul, and he says, Brother. It's remarkable, isn't it? Not you sleazy whatever, you foul, odious criminal. Not you'll pay for what you've done. But in an act of kindness and generosity, he touches him and he calls him a brother. It's a powerful reminder, isn't it, of the way that God recalibrates not only our relationship with him, but our relationship with others as well. Our relationship with others who know Christ and love Christ. In 1947, Corrie ten Boom gave a talk in Germany about God's forgiveness. Corrie and her sister Betsy had been prisoners in a concentration camp during the Second World War, and her sister Betsy had died in that concentration camp. And this night in 1947, when she was giving her talk, she finished, and it was then that she looked up and she saw a man that she recognised. It was one of the the guards from that very concentration camp, one of the worst guards, in fact, one of the most vicious and vile men who had ruled in that camp while she and her sister were there. He didn't recognise her, but she recognised him, and he had heard her speaking about that very concentration camp where he'd served. She didn't want to talk to him. She 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 couldn't cope. But he came up to her, And he said to her, I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. 
will you forgive me? Corrie Ten Boom wrote, And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It couldn't have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. She finally put out her hand almost mechanically, sort of determined to forgive but almost unable to do it. And she writes, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realised it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. This man had done such terrible evil. Terrible evil to Corrie Ten Boom herself and, and to her sister. This man had not just been brought back to God, though. He'd been brought into the church of God, into the people of God who know and love Jesus. He'd been brought back into friendship and love with the very people who'd suffered at his hands. Just like Comrade Duke, baptised into the faith by a Cambodian man who'd fled that reign of terror. And so too, Paul was not just brought into a living relationship with the risen Jesus, whom he'd been persecuting, he was brought back into a living relationship with the the church, the people in the church whom he'd been persecuting. Perhaps there are people in this church or or in other local churches around the town who were your enemies. You know, you know, I don't mean kind of the, the comedic cartoon enemy, but someone that you just couldn't get on with. Or maybe someone who'd done something really horrible against you. Like maybe they were an enemy. People who were enemies, but now by the grace of Christ, are now friends. It's a great miracle, isn't it? To be reconciled with people who were Opponents and enemies, people who are hated, people who, of whom you are suspicious, people with whom you are angry and bitter. It's a great miracle. I was in a church once where there was two people in the church who had formerly been married and they'd been divorced in difficult circumstances and yet they'd been able to patch up their differences so that they'd be able to attend the same church. It's remarkable. What an encouragement it is to know that people who have hurt us are not forever destined to be our enemies, but that it stands within God's power to reconcile not only 
them to God, but to reconcile us to them as well. And what an encouragement it is to know that people that we have hurt, people that our church has hurt, people that other churches have hurt, what an encouragement it is to know that they're not forever destined to be our enemies, but actually that God can reconcile us to them and them to us. What an encouragement to know that they don't stand beyond God's power to heal. One of the most remarkable things about the Christian community is that it's populated not by natural friends, but often by old enemies. People who have been reconciled to God and to each other through the death of Jesus. Well, God confronts Saul... He sends Ananias to welcome him into the church. But finally, God sends Paul out to serve. He welcomes Paul in and then he sends him out. Uh, God's purpose in confronting him on the road to Damascus is not merely to bring uh, Paul to know Christ but merely to, uh, or merely to bring him into the uh, community of people who know and love Christ. But God plans also to send him out to work in achieving God's great gospel purposes. Uh, When God sends Ananias to Saul, God tells Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God has plans. God plans not only to humble Saul, but to make him his servant. He doesn't want him just to be a Christian. He's going to make him one of the most important and influential figures in the history of the church and in fact in the history of the world. We know him better by the name Paul, and I've been mistakenly calling him Paul uh, for most of the sermon, but uh, he is the writer of many of the letters to the early Christians uh, that we have gathered together in the New Testament. Saul gets on with his task, his God-given task, almost straight away. It seems like he's kind of only just converted when he goes out on his gospel ministry, Uh, In verse 31, we're told that he got to work at once preaching the good news that Jesus is the Son of God. He proves to people, as we saw before from the Bible, that Jesus really is who he said he was. And in fact, his arguments are so convincing that people hate him for it. It's remarkable, isn't it? They don't love him and go, Oh, Paul, so glad that you convinced us of the truth. They say, You're so convincing that we hate you because actually we don't want to believe what you're saying. Their blindness was not a logical kind of a mental blindness. We can't understand what you're saying. Their their blindness was a moral blindness. I don't want to understand what you're saying. Stop talking to me. Saul's God, uh, new God-given mission is no walk in the park. It invites hostile opposition. These people try to kill him and he has to escape the city at night. There's an irony, I think, to Paul's, uh, to God's plan for Saul's life. Saul the persecutor becomes Saul the persecuted. God tells Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. It's a great call to ministry, isn't it? Here's the call to ministry, I'll show you how much you'll suffer for my name. God isn't calling Saul to a better life now, but to a new purpose a new mission, and to eternal life, a good life in the future, but in the new age, not in the present one. Saul's life now is to be shaped by gospel intent and also by gospel suffering. 
And while none of us are in fact called to the same kind of world-changing ministry that Paul had, at least not on the same scale, we are all called to serve Jesus. If you're a Christian, God has called you to serve. In what ways has he called you to serve? Well, he's called you to serve him by obeying Jesus and following Jesus and by trusting in all that Jesus has accomplished. He's called you to serve him by loving him with all your heart. He's called you to serve him by loving others. But he's also called you to to, uh, love him and others by making the gospel known. By making the gospel known to your children, to your parents, to your brothers and sisters, to your friends, to your neighbours, to your colleagues, to your doctor, to your plumber or your electrician, to visitors who uh, walk into church, to each other every week uh, and throughout the week. He's called you not only to make the gospel known, but to support the work of gospel mission, to support it through prayer, through the encouragement of people on the front line, to support it financially. He might even have called you to serve in gospel ministry on the other side of the world. He might be calling to you, uh, you to do that now. You could ask uh, Quentin after the service how he went from being a carpenter builder to preparing himself for mission on the other side of the world. How does that happen? <laughs> how do you make that transition? You could ask Ashley how she determined that it was God's call on her life to go to the other side of the world to serve in mission work. God may not be calling you to go, he may be calling you to go. Wherever he has called us to be, we're all called to live with gospel purpose uh, and to serve Jesus. And we're not only called to serve Jesus, but we're called to suffer as we do it. Paul writes to the the Christians in Philippi that they have been chosen by God not only to believe, that's great, but also to suffer, perhaps not so great. They're being called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. I'm sorry to say that the narrow way that Jesus talks about is a hard way. It's a difficult way. The way of following Jesus is the way of carrying a cross. And that means that it can be painful and awkward. But it's not painful and awkward, at least, because we're useless. It's painful and awkward because that's God's plan and purpose. It's God's plan and purpose that we should follow in the way of Christ. It's painful and difficult because no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted Jesus, they'll persecute us as well. If God can turn Jesus' suffering to the greatest good in the world, then he can turn our gospel suffering to great good in achieving his great gospel purposes as well. Well, like Saul, God confronts all of us with the good news of Jesus. God welcomes us to himself and he welcomes us not only to himself, but he welcomes us into the church into the community of people who know and love Jesus. And having welcomed us in, he also sends us out. He sends us out to live for Jesus, 
to live lives shaped by gospel purpose and lives shaped by gospel suffering. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for encountering Saul on the road to Damascus. Lord, thank you that you turned the most vicious opponent of Christianity into one of its most renowned servants. That you turned a man who so utterly disregarded Christ into a man who loved him dearly and was willing to die in the service of Christ and in making the good news of salvation in Christ known to the world. Father, thank you that you have also worked in the lives of many others. Thank you that you have worked in many of our lives. Lord, many of us too are unlikely converts. But you have called us in your grace to know and to love your precious Son, Jesus Christ. You have called us to yourself and you've called us into a loving community. And Lord, thank you that many of us can testify too that old bitternesses and old hatreds, old enemies, are now great friends. Lord, thank you uh, for the great work of the gospel. And Father, we pray that having called us in, you might also send us out bearing the gospel uh, as we go to the nations, making known the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus. Father, we ask that you would encourage us in that, strengthen us as we suffer in it, and make us to persevere by your powerful Holy Spirit who lives in us. Lord, call many more to yourself for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.